Hey, everyone, welcome to the next edition of Your Amigo Podcast. We're doing a debate series, and today is bladder cancer. And we're here with uh, Matt Galski from Mount Sinai. And we're going to talk about the application of adjuvant nivolumab for high-risk resected bladder cancer. Just to go over the data very briefly, and then I'm going to, Matt, I'm going to turn it over to you to start the debate. Checkmate 274 high-risk bladder cancer patients uh, with or without neoadjuvant chemotherapy and, and resection to adjuvant nivolumab or placebo. There is a disease-free survival benefit in the all-comer population, the hazard ratio is 0.7. In the BL1 positive population, that hazard ratio went down to 0.55. We've not seen data on overall survival for the ITT or any subsets. And there were some other interesting you know, subset data as well. FDA has given adjuvant nivolumab a broad label while EMA is restricted to pdl one positive only. So Matt, if you want to just do a really brief introduction and then take the, the side of the argument that adjuvant nivolumab is appropriate in an all-comer population. Sure. Thank you. So um, I'm Matt Galski. I'm a medical oncologist. I focus on bladder cancer. I'm at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. It's always a pleasure to be here and to debate Tom in any forum on any subject. So <laughs> I, I appreciate the invitation. Um, and this is this is some murky waters, right? Because we have two randomized phase three studies of adjuvant and checkpoint blockade in, in urothelial cancer that showed different results. And now we have different approvals or different labels for um, this study that did show positive results on both sides of the ocean. And so a, a bit of murky waters and, and certainly makes clinical trial planning potentially difficult in the future. So why an all-comer population for, for adjuvant nivolumab? Well, as you as you mentioned, the co-primary endpoints were to assess DFS in the ITT population, the PD-1 high population. I should mention that PD-1 high for the purpose of this trial was using the 28-8 antibody clone and in scoring that on tumor cells only with a cut point of greater than or equal to one. Um, so the ITT population, as you pointed out, was uh, 0.7 for the hazard ratio for DFS in PD-1 high patients, uh, a hazard ratio of 0.55. What is oftentimes not, not as prominent is that in the patients with TC less than 1%, the hazard ratio was actually 0.82 with a confidence interval of 0.63 to 1.06. So it was still favoring the right side of the, uh, 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 of, um, uh, uh, of the benefit, right, the effect. Um, so there was a post hoc analysis that we presented at ASCO GU this year that I think sheds maybe a little bit of additional light on this. And that is that we looked in a post hoc fashion at CPS scoring rather than uh, tumor cells scoring. So CPS scoring, meaning that scoring of PD-1 expression on both tumor cells and immune cells. And of the 709 ITT patients, 629 had samples where uh, we could assess both CPS uh, and TC. And interestingly, 88.6% of the patients had a CPS greater than or equal to one. Now, why did we do this? Well, we did it for a couple of reasons. One was to see if we could better understand why that hazard ratio might have been going in the right direction in TC less than 1% patients. The other reason is that CPS testing is done generally more commonly in pathology labs. And we found that in this CPS greater than or equal to one uh, population, the hazard ratio for DFS was 0.62. So even though that, uh, that scoring identified the vast majority of patients in the study, 
uh, the uh, the hazard ratio, the effect size w was quite similar to what we saw with TC. Um, interestingly, also that if you look at the patients who had CPS greater than or equal to one, but TC less than one, um, the hazard ratio was 0.73. So in summary, I think that um, the majority of patients derive some benefit from adjuvant EVO. I don't think we're smart enough yet to identify which patients uh, do not uh, definitively derive benefit, and therefore a non-biomarker-based approach is favored at this time. So, Matt, you're saying some of this is really the, the definition of the biomarker and the imperfections of how it's defined, but, it, but in reality, most, most patients, at least by the CPS, are pdl one positive and benefit. Tom, what That's say it. you? So, I mean, a couple of things. Firstly, Matt, welcome. We just had a debate on the video two minutes ago. It looks like Matt stolen or hijacked my side of the argument to broadcast <laughs> it at this podcast. So there's clearly an advantage in going first in the second debate. It's all which, part oh, of stop the Stop complaining, Tom. Just go. Which, uh, look, just, I'm just pointing it out, Brian, for, for you know, in, ca in case this doesn't go so well. Uh, look, I think I want to make two broad points and then I'm going to not say too much. The first is, I think there's a huge amount of uncertainty around disease-free survival and overall survival. We haven't yet seen overall survival. Um, we've seen pretty um, uh, unimpressive atezolizumab data for overall survival. There's issues around why they didn't hit disease-free survival. And I think we've had that debate previously, and that may be to do with placebo and the control arm. But nevertheless, we already have an immune checkpoint inhibitor trial out there without OS. So jumping in to a 0.70 OS signal, sorry, a 0.70 DFS, DFS yep. signal, and assuming all those patients are going to hit OS, I think is a bit, uh, is a bridge too far for me. And the other point, of course, within that argument is that many of these patients, half of them won't relapse when putting those patients in harm's way with a year of immune checkpoint inhibition, 10% of those patients are probably going to get life-changing toxicity of some debate. So I think if we're did some, some amount. So if we're going to debate this issue, I think we need to agree that we have to select patients. I think the second point I wanted to make is around the biomarker. And I know I'm arguing for the biomarker. And the first thing I'd like to say is in the trial design, the TC biomarker, which incorporates about half the patients, with a hazard ratio of 0.54, that for most patients is probably enough to say, you know, this is, you know, it's going to, it's going to half the chance of me relapsing. That's probably good enough to translate to some survival signal in the future. And I can see patients being attracted to that. I don't think patients will be as attracted to a 0.70. And of course, the 0.8 that Matt talks about that upper confidence interval of that goes above one and is not significant. And therefore, a non-significant DFS advantage is almost certainly, in my opinion, not going to translate to an OS advantage. So yeah. we don't know that that's the case. We shouldn't assume it will. That would be a mistake. So, Tom, a lot of your argument hinges on really a, a survival benefit. And the lower the DFS hazard ratio, the more likely you are to see a survival benefit. Yeah, and 0 0.7 is, is not enough for me. And I think too many patients we put in harm's way in the, in the meantime. Uh, okay. I mean, I think saying patients don't want a 30% reduction in their risk of recurrence, I'm not sure that's exactly true, but I, I take your point. Well, now, what do you well, think about think about? Well, it survival. depends how patients are sold that 30%. If you say that there's no overall survival benefit, there's a 30% chance of it coming back, but you can subsequently get the treatment and that there is a good chance of coming into harm's way and you may not need the treatment that's more complicated the issue is pushing these decisions 
to patients is not it's an easy thing to do on the one hand but on the other in areas which are as uncertain as this i think we without survival i don't think that's a fair discussion from a patient perspective i think we need to be more black and white about that now in the 0.5 i think it's easier but 0.7 without os um and a year of toxicity and a 50 percent chance. i got it i got it you've made the argument matt matt what do you think about that about the the hinging on survival basically i think patients view these trade-offs in in many different ways and so it really warrants a a shared decision with the patient in terms of what risk they're willing to endure for the potential benefit in the absence of knowing there's a survival benefit yet i'd like to point out that we don't know that there's not a survival benefit we don't have the data yet it was an event-driven analysis The second thing I'll say quickly, and maybe I'm loading up an argument for Tom, is that I think we have to be careful that we don't conflate biomarkers that define who needs treatment uh, with biomarkers that define who benefits from treatment. Now, of course, you can't benefit from treatment if you don't need treatment. The one testing is a biomarker that potentially identifies who benefits from treatment, but that will be distilled in the absence of not knowing who actually needs treatment. And that's the, that's the issue in the adjuvant setting, that we don't know who needs treatment. I think first we need to do that, and then we could start to focus on biomarkers to identify who actually benefits from that treatment. Matt, I think you might have thrown a ball to me, which I'm going to able to knock out the park here. <laughs> I don't know that's the case, but I think you might have done. So we know, we're beginning to know that there are some features, such as ctDNA, which help us identify patients who are likely to relapse. I totally agree that the combination of ctDNA in combination with tumor-based biomarkers will give you a population that's likely to relapse. We know ctDNA positive patients have about a 90% chance of relapse versus 20% of those patients. Right. But Tom, that's not available in practice, right? Well, you can guess. Yes, it is. I mean, Natera, the technology is right. available. You're suggesting we should use that now clinically. Well, that, there is a survival in the... In the no, in are you pre- suggesting that if you let me finish my little CT sentence, I, you're, 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 <laughs> oh, you're mad at me for interrupting you? <laughs> I, w- I was going to jump in, but... <laughs> no, Matt, you go. You go, Matt. No, I'm joking. It's my turn. It's my okay. Turn. <laughs> no, Matt, go, go. Okay. So, so yes. So, that leads to, th- to the very practical question, Tom. If you have a patient who has high pd one expression by 28-8 today who walks into your clinic, do you offer that patient in vigor 11? And I think that's quite a, I mean, that's a that's quite a difficult question. Um, so, <laughs> so I wasn't I wasn't expecting that. Okay, so let me try to answer that question. I think if you know they're PDL one positive with two eight eight, and I'm not to be honest, Matt, I'm not bought into your CPS argument. I think it's exploratory. I feel we've been down that exploratory route too many times with as is your biomarkers. By the way, but go ahead. Um, but. Um, I'm so, but I do, you know, on the 288 biomarker, it was predefined. It was a co-primary endpoint. It was positive. It came in with a 0.5. If you know there's a 50% chance of relapse, then you might say those patients are not ideal for a trial, which, um, uh, which, uh, which the, you have a chance of not getting therapy. Now, I can understand why patients more might want to do that. But my preference was if you know your pd one biomarker status, you probably shouldn't be going into 011, the prospective study exploring whether the ctDNA um, can define the, the two risk groups. Right. Having said that, in the 
um, in the manuscript that we wrote regarding this, we did look at the PDL1 biomarker and other components, and it's clear that there is a CTDNA negative population that, sorry, CTDNA positive population that's PDL1 negative, and they still seem to get some benefit from therapy. So let's get back to adjuvant Nebo. We're getting too far afield here. So, Tom, in your clinic, you know, who are you offering adjuvant Nebo to? Well, I'll be look at, and are you using CTDNA I'll be to make clear that about decision? This. I'm not going to talk about trials because it's such a cop out to say we're doing trials, so that's not right. Fine, right. Um, yeah. So in practice, in practice, I'm currently not offering adjuvant nivolumab to patients, and to anyone, um, and that's not because um, we haven't got access to it. Because some patients obviously come to me with um, with private healthcare insurance. I don't right, right. see those patients, but the reality is, I'm not currently offering the patients. I'm waiting to see some trend towards a survival signal before we kick that process off. Now, if a patient came to me and said, I'm going to have adjuvant therapy and I've made my mind up, then I'm not saying I think you've got this wrong. I'm saying you're taking a bit of a leap of faith and you may come to harm's way and we don't know if there's a survival signal with it yet. That's fair. So and not... are you using CTDNA to inform that decision? Um, I, I would encourage this patient to have CTDNA. So that, and if they were CTDNA positive and PDL1 positive, I would support it. If they You'd came in with a different PDL1 biomarker, I, I would. But the point is that if you, and if I can just, and I won't talk any more after this, um, <laughs> all match sure. um, If my perspective on this and my side of the argument was the EMA's position, which is the CTDNA positive approach, and if a patient came to me, and they were cDNA positive with 288, under those circumstances, I would talk to them about this. And although I wouldn't necessarily offer it to them, I'd say, listen, there's some data out there. Okay. It's approved. And actually, they, you need to make your mind up. If right. it was me, I'm not sure I'd have it. Yet. Right. So you're, you're mostly waiting for survival data, but there might be some higher risk but patients, as you just defined, I am where you'd be more comfortable the, giving it. Yes, and I would be comfortable giving it the PD1 biomarker positive. Right. And I think the EMA therefore have made the but right. You're not pushing it. You're not the, pushing the right it pragmatic decision. And I think the FDA have got this wrong. Matt, <laughs> what, Matt, how are you in in your practice applying it? I want to ask about some subsets in a second, but just broad broadly speaking, are you using the biomarker, using CTDNA, or are you just having that sort of global benefit risk with each patient? Uh, I'm not using any biomarkers right now. I, I don't think that we're smart enough to be able to use those to identify which patients derive benefit. Um, and, uh, and I present the data to, to patients, to all patients who meet the eligibility criteria. And I would say the vast majority have opted to proceed with treatment. And are you, are you maybe pushing it a little more in the PDO on positive? As you know, even with shared decision making, we all have influence over you know, over patients and decisions they might make. So do you sort of feel better about it or push it a little more in those patients we're, or is it know, more balanced? We're, we're not actually testing routinely these days no, as, as testing has gone out of favor in other clinical disease states of bladder cancer. Okay. So Matt, I want to ask you about a couple of subsets here, last sort of part of this. In upper track, the hazard ratio was sort of in the 1.2 to 1.5 range. So it was sort of not in favor uh, of adjuvant uh, nivolumab. And if you look at the patients who got new adjuvant chemotherapy, that hazard ratio is 0.52 versus 0.92 in patients who didn't. I know these are subsets. It's all exploratory with all those normal caveats. Are you using that subset data at all in practice or not? 
I am not. I, I'm, I'm more concerned about doing that than using a predefined subset based on a stratified risk factor like PDL1 by, by TC. I, I think it's very dangerous to use subset, on, yeah. you know, subset analyses to guide clinical yeah. practice. Are there, are are there biological reasons? Let, let's assume those hazard ratios represent reality, which I know they may not. Are there biologic reasons? There absolutely are. And you could explain those subsets away, no problem biologically. But, you know, we, we, we tend to explain results that we see with the data that we have that fits that <laughs> hypothesis. So, yes, I get on why those subsets might be okay. biologically well, real. Well, I said I didn't want to say anymore. I was joking about that, Brian. You know that. Obviously. Yeah. Yes. So, I know. Um, <laughs> Just two things. Number one, upper plaque disease has very different biology. Um, it does look distinct. And there is also an adjuvant trial out there with adjuvant chemotherapy, which has a PFS in unselected patients in the 0.4s and 5s and an OS trend. So as it currently stands, there's more impressive, in my opinion, adjuvant chemotherapy data than nivolumab data. So yes, I think that subset population needs to be um, treated differently. So I am, my approach would be different. And again, in the same way as I'm, I'm offering patients without a survival signal um, adjuvant chemotherapy, I would be offering that subset with upper tract disease. I'd be offering them adjuvant chemotherapy, number one. Um, and that's the PALT data. And number yep. two is the neoadjuvant thing is intriguing because the positive metastatic trial was the sequencing um, javelin trial. Now, in reality, um, all patients who have cystectomy who relapse soon after are, are essentially patients with advanced disease anyway. And the distinction yep. between measurable and unmeasurable advanced disease could pro will probably disappear in the future when we start using circulating biomarkers. So it is intriguing that the identical population has come in with a big home run the second time. And so I actually think that while I agree with Matthew, these are undefined um, subsets at the beginning of the journey, two key subsets which um, have either underlying biology or pre-existing supporting data have come out to suggest they need to be looked at differently. I think these two subsets are very compelling. And if you said to me, is this as compelling as the PDO on biomarker, which I've never been super keen on, particularly the CPS biomarker, I would say, yes, this is at least as compelling as that. I would just be careful about not only the usual statistical sort of noise in terms of subset analyses, but I think there are some other potential um, issues at play here with the, with the neoadjuvant chemotherapy set in that the event rate in that subset of patients is much different than the event rate in patients who didn't get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And, and that speaks to the biology of the disease, right? And so I think the events might be occurring later in patients who didn't get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And so we haven't seen the full effect yet. The effect yeah, is going point. to be delayed in that subset of patients. All right, gentlemen, I think we're going to call it great debate. Very respectful. Appreciate it. Um, it sounds like waiting for survival data, recognizing the imperfections of the biomarker. And hopefully we'll get some more data from this trial and, and other trials in, in the future. So thank you both for your time. That was fun. Thank you. Cheers and bye. Bye.